Pray as I, as we listen to the word of God, and let's pray that indeed these words which we shall hear now uh, will minister to each one of us personally, and that we will not be disturbed by other things. Father God, thank you once again, Lord Father, for this time that you have given us, Lord, when we can come into your presence to hear from you, Lord Father. Father God, we know, Lord, that you are a God who is so mindful of us, that you want to build us up into the kind of people into the church that you want us to be, into individuals that you want us to be, to be like you, Lord Father. Father God, I pray, Lord, that you will minister to every one of us today, Lord Father. Every word that is spoken, Lord Father, every word that is shared from your scripture, Lord Father, let it be that which you give, Lord Father, and let it minister unto our brothers and sisters this afternoon, Lord. Father, I commit each one of us into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters. Now, on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee is a town called uh, Capernaum. Uh, and that's where Jesus actually started his ministry. Now, close to Capernaum, on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, is a small hill. Now, 2,000 years back, Jesus Christ sat down at the apex of that hill and started his longest recorded teaching or discourse to his disciples. It is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And many of us have heard it, many of us have read it time and time again. It runs through three chapters of the, in the Gospel of Matthew and it is 107 verses long. And that is the longest discourse that Jesus Christ made to uh, his disciples. Now to commemorate that place where Jesus sat and taught, there is now a church which is called the Church of the Beatitudes. And interestingly, if you go inside that church, that uh, sanctuary area is actually made up of eight walls again commemorating the eight Beatitudes that Jesus spoke about from, uh, as, as the starting of the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount was primarily Jesus teaching his apostles and disciples about the attitudes and character traits that he expected his followers to have. Now today we shall have a small part of that sermon that Jesus uh, brought forth on that day. So shall we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and let me read to you from the New King James Version verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 5 and we will read verses 1 to 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those are the words that we will use as our main text, uh, scripture text this day, but we will refer to a few other places also. So please keep your Bibles open to Matthew 5, because that's where we are going to spend most of our time. Now, from the first two verses, we see that Jesus was specifically addressing his disciples though it was in the general hearing of a larger multitude. This is what we read in verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. And then you have the, uh, the, the eight blessings that follow. This is confirmed in Luke 6 verse 20 where it says then he Jesus lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God the many theologians today accept that the main uh, target of the Sermon on the Mount message, the different aspects of it, the Beatitudes, the law, uh, facts about others, facts about uh, God, all of these were primarily directed at the disciples. Now remember the disciples are more than the twelve. Okay, there are many more uh, disciples. We are talking about the apostles and the disciples. However, when Jesus spoke it, while he targeted his disciples, he spoke it out in the, in the presence of a multitude of people. So many people heard him speaking. But God had a very unique message for his disciples. And this is the way Jesus spoke 2,000 years back. And what he said then, 2,000 years back, is applicable today to you and to me. And specifically, they address you and me as true believers. So if you aren't in the Lord today, if you aren't a born-again believer, these words will give you a message. But the true impact of what the Lord is saying can better be understood if you have a relationship with the Lord. Okay, and that's the way we are going to start this, uh, uh, this study this day. So when he began his discourse, Jesus gave eight specific blessings with resultant promises. 
These are often referred to as the Beatitudes, and we are going to focus today on these eight Beatitudes. There is an application point which will come after that, and we will touch upon that also. Now, the word Beatitude itself is not found in the Bible. It comes from the Latin word Beatitudo, which is actually translated as internal happiness. Internal happiness. In the English Bible, the word most commonly used to describe this state of internal happiness is blessed. You see, in reality, Jesus expects all his true believers and disciples to be internally happy, irrespective of the situation, circumstances around you. You are therefore blessed if you have that internal happiness. It's not your outward that matters. It's not what's around you that matters, but what is in you. And so when Jesus said eight times in these verses, blessed are you, what he was trying to say was that you are my disciples, so you are internally happy. And that must determine what you are going to do with your life. It is not your external, it are not external factors that, is, that decides what you do with your life, but it is who you are on the inside that determines what you are going to do, what you are going to say, as far as Jesus is concerned. And that's why he said, blessed are you, internally happy are you. Now, generally speaking, the Beatitudes can be recognized as eight attitudes or character traits that you and I should be. So they are the B attitudes. And then we consequently do them so they become the do attitudes. So they are first in us, so they are the be attitudes, and then we practice them so they become the do attitudes. They are progressive in intensity, as we shall see. They appear to be paradoxical, and they appear to be against logic. And that is why not everybody could understand it. They form an eight-in-one package deal. You and I must be and must do all eight. We cannot choose to do some and discard others. We have to do all of them. We have to be all of them. Dr. John Stott, the famous Anglican theologian who died in 2011, had these words to say about the Beatitudes. He said, it is the beginning of the best known teaching of Jesus, though arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. Now, with that introduction, let us study each of these Beatitudes. Beatitude number one, verse three. Blessed are the, pure, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
these people the poor in spirit are often described as spiritually impoverished spiritually destitute or spiritually bankrupt now the paradox of this beatitude is simply this it is to such spiritually impoverished people that the kingdom of heaven is promised the kingdom of heaven is not promised to the spiritually self-sufficient I know it all kingdom of heaven is not promised to such people the kingdom of heaven is promised to the spiritually destitute spiritually impoverished people now that's a paradox because if you look at the times when Jesus spoke this the most learned people in scripture were the Pharisees and the Sadducees but what was Jesus trying to say here Jesus was telling his disciples that knowing the scriptures left to right or right to left whichever way you choose to read it is not going to be an entry ticket to heaven because that is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought they knew that they they said they thought and everybody thought that they knew everything about scripture they were the wise men they were the leaders but Jesus was simply saying not adequate just knowing the scriptures just being an MPhil or a PhD in theology is not going to get you to heaven you need to be spiritually poor it is better according to Jesus to have an open mind to allow God to minister to one's needs those who are spiritually destitute actually sense their spiritual need and therefore they seek after God and God says to them is promised the kingdom of heaven we all need to be poor in spirit we all need to allow God to meet our spiritual needs we all know or many of us know that the same word of scripture that we have read hundreds of times for example the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want Psalm 23 verse 1 the same scripture can just be these words but suddenly those words can take an entirely different personal meaning the Lord is my shepherd can mean something suddenly in the circumstance that you are in where you need the shepherd the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want I shall not be in need can suddenly have an entirely uh, magnificent meaning in your life and mine at one point of time while the rest of the time it's just these words that we read and they're very nice they're David's words they're very nice words but you see there are times when God uses that very commonly used scripture to minister to you and to me he may minister that word to you but not to me at that time 
because it may be a different scripture that I need. So we need to be spiritually destitute, not think that we know it all. Yes, I know that 365 times in the Bible it says fear not. In fact, 366 times God has made allowance for the leap year. So what? Does the word fear not mean anything to you? Allow God to minister that to you. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. And to such is promised the kingdom of heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and I'll read it from the New Living Translation. What we read is this. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to, to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. Let God minister to us. Let God look at our state of spiritual poverty and let him say, I am going to talk to my son. I am going to talk to my daughter because they need my word. And it is this that Jesus Christ was saying when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15, and I'm reading it from the New International Version, says this, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The poor in spirit. Today, do you want your impoverished spirit to be enriched by the Spirit of God? Or do you want to be destroyed by the empty words that this world offers? Beatitude number two, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who are these that Jesus is addressing as those who mourn? Who are those who mourn? And what do they mourn about? Now we need to go back a little bit. And if you go to Matthew chapter 4, it's just the previous chapter, verse 17, it is written, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this is actually the start of Jesus' ministry. Just prior to that, he had his 40 days of fasting and then he was tempted by the tempter. And immediately after that, in Capernaum, Jesus started his ministry. And then of course he went around healing and doing all kinds of miracles. Okay, but what was the first thing he said? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A little before Jesus said these words, John the Baptist had been preaching about the winnowing fan in the Messiah's hand and how the chaff would be burnt with unquenchable fire. 
This is Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. So who are those who mourn? Those who mourn are those who are deeply concerned about those who will be burnt in this unquenchable fire. The word of Jesus is repent. Many people were not repenting. John the Baptist was more blunt in his words. He said, there is one who comes with the winnowing fan and he will throw the chaff into the unquenchable fire. Who are those who mourn? Those who know the Lord. Because those who know the Lord are not bound for unquenchable fire. But you are mourning for those who don't know the Lord. You see, that's what Jesus was saying. And that is why this Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount was specifically directed to the disciples. Because they knew him. Or they were supposed to know him. Like many of us, we are supposed to know the Lord. They were concerned about the lack of repentance in sinners. Many of whom would be their friends and families and relatives. Now, aren't you concerned about your friends and your family and relatives? And if we say, as we are doing our current Bible study, and we say that these are the end times, aren't you worried about your, aren't you concerned more, more than worry? Aren't you concerned about the so many relatives you and I have who don't know the Lord? Are they bound for unquenchable fire? Yet Jesus was telling them, they shall be comforted. You see, Jesus was saying that those in mourning now would still be comforted as Jesus Christ becomes a reality in their lives and in the lives of their loved ones. Jesus was saying that there is always the chance. Just keep at it. Just keep at it. You will be comforted. Why will you be comforted? Because those you love will come to the Lord. You see why the Beatitudes are not, uh, have, have not been obeyed or have not been uh, followed by a lot of people. They are tough. But these are the words of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 10, and I'm again quoting from New International Version. This is what we read. And this is Paul speaking. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Paul was blunt in his letter. And he said, I might have hurt you. So be it. But I'm glad I wrote that then. 
because it poked you, it pricked you. You you were sorry. You were you were into a, you went into a state of sorrowful repentance. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 to 10 in the NIV that I'm using. Today, you and I must not be satisfied. We must not be satisfied with our own personal salvation, but must have godly sorrow for the lost. They, like you and I, need to be comforted with the comfort of Jesus Christ. Beatitude number three, verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. From a worldly perspective, it is not the meek who should inherit the earth. It is the strong. See the paradox once again? But that is not what the Bible teaches us. Jesus, while quoting this beatitude, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, was simply quoting David, who in Psalm 37, verse 11a, says the same words, but the meek shall inherit the earth. Now in the Bible, the words meek and humble are often interchangeably used, at least in the English Bible. Now we know that two of the meekest, humblest, gentlest men described in the Bible are Moses and Jesus. One, Moses, was used to save the nation of Israel from bondage to the Egyptians. The other, Jesus, came to save the nations of the world from bondage to Satan and eternal hellfire. The overriding character of Moses and Jesus is that they both obeyed and trusted God the Father totally, completely, implicitly, use any other word. 100%, not 99.9%. So who are the meek? Those who trust and obey God completely. And they are the ones who will inherit the earth. Do you want to inherit the earth? Very simple. Be meek. Trust and obey the Lord 100%. No question marks. No plan B. No God can I have other options. Now please remember, don't confuse meek with weak. The Bible tells us it is the meek who will inherit the earth. Those who humbly trust God. It's not the weak. The world unfortunately confuses meek and weak and then says it's not either the meek or the weak who will inherit the world, the earth, but it is the strong. Totally wrong. Meekness is not thinking less of oneself, but rather thinking of oneself less. 
In Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So what is meekness? Trusting God, obeying God completely, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, thinking of others more. Today, are you meek and humble or are you something else? Beatitude number four, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Who is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is simply talking about people who fervently desire God's rule. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. People who desire earnestly for God's rule. God's rule where? It first starts in me. God's rule in me. Then God's rule in my family. And then the circle keeps increasing. Remember Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. This is the principle in the Bible. It starts with me. Do I desire God's rule completely in my life? Do I hunger and thirst for that righteousness of God? Not my righteousness, the righteousness of God. The world is currently a hugely corrupt place. I'm not being politically wrong here. Everybody knows this. Okay, the world is a hugely corrupt place, ruled generally by corrupt people and often under the influence of ungodly forces. But God's rule is built on justice, fairness, and everything that is right. Now, Jesus was telling his disciples then, and he's telling us now, stop thinking like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the world at large, who think that living by the law satisfies God. Indeed, it doesn't. You see that law is a very low standard. The law is only the basic yardstick, but it does not make allowance for the standards of love, grace and mercy, which God applies. On the one hand, what we need to do is we need to empty ourselves of our self-righteous attitudes and get filled by the grace of God and God's righteousness for that is the need of the hour. On the other hand, we need to stop thinking that my rules are the best rules. I'm doing it correctly. 
the others aren't doing it correctly. My neighbor isn't doing it correctly. My, my brother in church, my sister in church isn't doing it correctly. I'm doing it correctly. My pastor isn't doing it correctly. You know, the evangelist isn't doing it correctly. No, no. Stop justifying your self-righteousness. Paul explains it well in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, where he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Quite clear, isn't it? Today, are we hungry and thirsty for God's righteousness or are we satisfied with our self-righteous ways of living? Beatitude number 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is another attitude where Jesus instructs us to be counterculture. The world works by the principle that there is no value in being second place. What does the world say? Show no mercy, but do all you must to get to the top. If you have to step on a few people on the way, step on them and get there. But get to the top. That's where you need to be. That's the standard slogan in the corporate world today. Be first. Nothing else counts. Who remembers second place? Jesus does not want us to think as the world thinks. What he said is entirely different. He said, be kind, be considerate, be loving, be merciful to the less fortunate people around you. Lift them up. Don't step on them. Lift them up. Carry them with you. Even, them, even move them to a place better than you. In Luke 6, verse 36, Jesus says, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. See, they are tied together. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. In James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we are told, and listen to this carefully. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. 
you and I are the recipients of God's wonderful love, forgiveness and mercy. Let us choose to dispense that same merciful attitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The more merciful you are, the more mercy you obtain. See the tie-up. Beatitude number 6, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were always concerned about outward appearances. They would always follow religious rituals to show the people that they were meticulous in following the law. But their motives were never pure or clean. They wanted name and fame from those around them. Remember that prayer Pharisee made and the poor publican made? And the Pharisee said, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like that guy. While the publican could not even lift his head. He said, have mercy on me, Lord. You see, the Pharisees were interested in the rituals, in what people saw, the masks that we put on, the drama that we live every day to show others who we are. Their motives, the Pharisees and Sadducees, their motives were never pure or clean. What they portrayed on the outside was not what they were on the inside. But Jesus is telling us something different. And that's what he was telling his disciples then, he's telling us today. I don't want you to be like the Pharisees. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the corollary of that, if I, can, if I can use a corollary, is those who are not pure in heart shall not see God. Not very nice that way, is it? See, God requires us to be clean on the inside. A clean heart is a pure heart. A pure heart is clean of sin. And it is only Jesus Christ who can give us that clean, pure heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, was the cry of David. Psalm 51, verse 10. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, NIV, we read these words. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So you and I are called to be pure 
and to constantly purify ourselves. Today, if we choose to be pure in our hearts, to be clean inside, our reward is that we shall see God. Purity is a gift of God. Maintaining that purity is our responsibility. Beatitude number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus Christ, before leaving the earth, promised his disciples peace. John 14, 27a says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Unfortunately, having an attitude of peace is not a natural characteristic of mankind. In Psalm 120, verse 6 and 7, New Living Translation, we read this. This is uh, the psalmist writing. I am tired of living among people who hate peace. I search for peace, but when I speak of peace, they want war. This was one of those few verses which was quoted just after the uh, World War II in the United Nations. One leader got up and said, everybody talks of peace, but they think of war. And he quoted Psalm 120, verse 6 and 7. I am tired of living among people who hate peace. I search for peace, but when I speak of peace, they want war. But you and I are called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You and I are called to be peacemakers. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, we are told, if it is possible, you know, you read those couple of verses in Romans 12, you know, these are the character traits that a Christian should have. Everything is things that we can do. But when it comes to verse 18, it is written, if it is possible. There is a, already, you know, the, uh, God, while putting that scripture, has put it that, I know that many of you don't even think of peace. However, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. It's not easy. But that is what God said. If you want to be a son of God, you need to be a peacemaker. But we need to remember two fundamental principles while being peacemakers. So this is where some of us mess up. Peacemakers never compromise the truth to make peace. Number one. Number two, peacemakers never accept evil to make peace. So you don't compromise the truth 
you never accept evil for the sake of peace. You make peace. Be a peacekeeper. Be a peacemaker. But stand for the truth and stand for what is right. Now, what are we promised if we choose to be peacemakers, which we all should be because all eight are what we should be doing? We shall be called sons of God. Now, this was a pretty new concept for the people at that time, including the disciples. Because in the Old Testament, which is what the people knew at that time, the title son of God applied only to the Messiah. And now Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be sons of God. Now as it was the, you know, Matthew never says the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of heaven, you know, wherever he writes about the kingdom, he always writes it as kingdom of heaven, never kingdom of God. But in Mark, Luke and John, it's kingdom of God. Because the gospel of Matthew was predominantly meant for the Jews. And the Jews do not take the name of the Lord in vain or lightly. They will not mention the name of God. So to say kingdom of God, you have to mention God's name. So they wouldn't. But what is Jesus Christ saying here? He said, you will be sons of God. Counterculture. But in the New Testament, things changed. And I'm going to read for you from Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to 5, the Living Bible, where it says, But when the right time came, the time God decided on, He sent His Son, born of a woman, born as a Jew, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own sons. You see, this is what Paul said later. But on that hill, next to the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus spoke, he probably sent a tremor among the people. How can we be called sons of God? And I remember a quote from a long time back. I don't remember who said it, but this is the quote. The son of God became the son of man so that sons of men could become sons of God. It summarizes everything. You need to choose to be a peacemaker in thought and in deed. For some reason, which I can't understand, it tells me that my internet connection is pretty unstable. I don't know. Anyway, we'll go to beatitude number eight, which is verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
just as the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, it also belongs to the ones persecuted because of righteousness. Not just the persecuted. Persecuted because of righteousness. Living righteous, godly lives has never been an approved style of living in this world. You just look around. Look at the world. It's a messed up place. Ungodly, unrighteous people cannot tolerate if you and I choose to live righteously. They want to harass you. But you see, that's not the way. We are not expected to to think the way the world thinks or live the world the way the world lives. But let it be no surprise when you are made fun of, when you are mocked, when you are harassed, when you are persecuted for your right ways of living. But stick to it because God has told us to stick to right ways of living even if the world doesn't want it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul again tells us, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So it is no surprise that uh, you know, people make fun of you, people mock you, people slap you, people flog you, people strip you. But what's your reward? Kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to amplify this eighth beatitude to directly involve his disciples. And that today includes you and me. We read this in verses 11 and 12 of Matthew 5. Some people have called this the ninth beatitude, but most people say that this is an amplification of the eighth beatitude. Verses 11 and 12 of Matthew 5 states, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christianity has been built on the lives of martyrs. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Or Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace? Or Stephen being stoned to death? Or John on the island of Patmos? Or Jesus on the cross of Calvary? Christianity has been built on the lives of martyrs. Are you being persecuted today because of your honesty, your integrity, your righteousness, your choice to do the right thing. Stay strong. Your reward is the kingdom of heaven. Look at the words. Huh? The, the statement is not your reward is in the kingdom of heaven. Your reward is the kingdom of heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. And I'm reading from New International Version. Paul says this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, 
yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Now as I close, what is the final message for us from the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? After giving these eight foundational attitudes that a Christian believer must be in his or her life every day, Jesus gave us the practical application of what we must do every day. And let me take my concluding verses. Please keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Absolutely well-known verses to most of us. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a, can a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What was Jesus Christ telling us? Or what is Jesus Christ telling us? We are the salt of the earth and light of the world. What does this mean? It simply means that you and I, having the attitudes that Jesus Christ just described, now have to influence and impact locally and globally. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Don't focus on the salt and the light. Salt of the earth, light of the world. So you and I have to have an influence and impact locally and globally. This is the God-given mandate for Christian believers to get off the sidelines and start seriously impacting the world. And that's why I actually titled today's message as the Beatitudes, a mandate for believers. The Beatitudes, a mandate for believers. This is God-given mandate for all of us, Christian believers, to get off the sidelines. Seriously start impacting the world. Think about it worldwide. 
how many places do you have Christian believers at the center of governance of nations? I believe the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison is a born-again Pentecostal believer. I'm not too sure about anybody else. Your faith and life is not just about getting you and me to heaven. It is about getting the word to the world and thus influencing the world to get to heaven. You may not be a YouTube influencer. You may not be a political influencer. But be an influencer for Christ. Now there is a lot that can be said about salt and light. And I know that Pastor Abraham had taken a message on this a couple of seasons back. So I'm not going to go into details. But let me tell you just this. Salt is an invisible influencer and a flavor creator. Light is a visible influencer and a darkness dispeller. Both salt and light are needed for sustenance of life. You and I are meant to be salt and light. But to do that, we need to know what are the internal happiness attitudes, the beatitudes and the do attitudes that we need to have. Now, as I call on Pastor Francis, let me end this study with another quote, again coming from the same Anglican theologian, Dr. John Stott. If the house is dark, there is no sense in blaming the house. Question to ask is, where is the light? If the meat goes bad, there is no sense in blaming the meat. Question to ask is, where is the salt? If society becomes corrupt or evil, there is no sense in blaming society. Question to ask is, where is the church? Today, I leave you with these questions. Am I spiritually destitute? Am I mourning for the lost? Am I meek enough to think of myself less? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I merciful enough to continue receiving the mercy of God? Are my thoughts pure? Is my life clean? Do I live in peace in a world that is looking for trouble? Am I honest? Do I show integrity? Do I live righteously? Am I the salt I am meant to be? Am I the light that shines in the darkness? Church, God bless you all. Pastor Francis.